All right. Good morning. Thank you again for joining us here on Good Friday. It is a joy for me to see so many people together. Good Friday is, in my books, a little bit of an odd holiday because of its unique mood. Unlike other Christian holidays like Easter, Pentecost, Thanksgiving, Christmas, the day is not a straight-up day of celebration. There is this somber tone that immerses us because of the fact that this day commemorates Jesus' death. At the same time, it's not really strictly a somber day either, not like memorizing a tragedy like 9-11 or something like that, um, because of the fact that we recognize that this really wasn't a tragedy, no matter how much loss there was in it. And so on top of the sadness, we also layer on gratitude and even celebration because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Capturing this combination of, of sorrow and joy, of grief and anticipation, isn't easy. <laughs> it's easy to fall into the trap of giving one or the other too much weight and coming across as wallowing or being flippant about the cross. And I think you can see the challenge of weaving those things together, even in something as simple as Daniel's greeting this morning. Uh, I was actually saying to Jason uh, as I was getting in here, it's, it's hard to even know how to greet somebody on Good Friday because of the fact that you want to capture that balancing of these two things. And, and sometimes I think that you know, it would be good if we had something like the Easter cadence where we say, he is risen, he is risen indeed, something like, you know, he is dead for our salvation or something like that, a call and response that everybody was on the same page about. But since we don't have that and it would be very difficult to get everybody on board, I think Jason's wisdom was pretty good that, that simply greeting one another with good morning is good because it really is a good morning. <laughs> and, and, and so we kind of fall into this place of, of trying to capture words and thoughts and songs that bring these two things together, the sorrow and the joy, the grief and the hope. And this is very important. It is actually really, really important to our faith that we are able to bring these things together on this day as well as in general because we recognize that these two emotions, these two states of mind really are part of our existence. They are part of the experience that we have as Christians. The, the, the grief and the joy always come together. We cannot overlook the somberness of the day just because of the fact that we want to get to the rejoicing part or vice versa. In fact, I actually want to put forward today that one of the things God wants of us, one of the things that he requires of us to be faithful is that we honor him in our grief. That that is actually something that's very important to God. He wants us to honor him in our grief. And, and to unpack that this morning, I want to ask three different questions. First of all, why is honoring God in our grief so important? Then how did Jesus' earliest followers honor God in their grief on Good Friday? And then how can we honor God in our grief today? So first of all, understanding why it is important for us to honor God in our grief, we, we have to start with understanding how salvation functions biblically. And that really begins with understanding the story that the Bible lays before us, the story that we are told really defines all of our experiences, the story of, of God's good work 
in this world. This is really central to what it means to be a Christian. You see, the Bible begins with the claim that God created the world good and that he created humanity with the purpose of helping care for that world and maintain its goodness. But instead of doing so, people doubted God's goodness and they chose to rebel against him and to do things their way instead of living the way that he had told them to. And, and that broke our relationship with God, with each other, and with the world. And this, this failure on our part and the broken relationships that came about as a result also brought about suffering and death. Now, instead of handing us over completely to these things, to the consequences of our actions, to the suffering and death that we had earned, God chose to work, to restore the relationship with us. He did this by introducing himself to people and inviting them to participate in his story of redemption he began with a man named Abraham and, and, and promised him descendants. And then he spoke to those descendants and promised to make them a people set apart to bless the world. And through those Israelites came a man, Jesus of Nazareth. And that man was understood by his earliest followers to have brought about God's plan for salvation, to bring us back into relationship with him and to undo the sin and brokenness of the world. And Christians understand that because of Jesus and because of what he did, we know ultimately the world will be remade, that, that his followers will get to spend eternity with God and that we will be able to experience the good world and the good purpose that we once were designed for. Now, as we reflect on that story, I think it's important to zoom in on what exactly it is that Jesus did to bring about that salvation. You see, Jesus really... Um, upended people's expectations about what it was that God was going to do in the world. The traditional view, the view that had developed over a long period of time, was that God was ultimately going to rescue Israel from their captors by raising up a military leader called the Messiah. He would overthrow the other empires and he would establish a kingship that would reign over the world in God's ordained way. And that that would begin to really redeem the world and bring it back into relationship with God. But as time progressed, and, and, and Israel suffered longer and longer under oppressors, there became a new view. People began to wonder, well, maybe it's not so much that God is going to send an earthly king, somebody who's going to come along and save us from our emperor oppressors, but maybe God is actually going to bring this world to an end. And he's going to remake the world and he's going to raise up all of his faithful followers into this new earth and, and there we are going to live under his rule and reign. They call that day the day of judgment or the day of the resurrection. And, and a group of people begin to look ahead to that day and say, that is our hope. It is, not, it is not a king on earth, but it is this future day of resurrection when God will remake the world. And you see, what Jesus did is that he actually combined these two concepts in a shocking way. He came and he, he claimed to be God himself who had come to offer a perfect sacrifice for our sins and reconcile us to God. He demonstrated that he had the perfect authority of God and that he really was the Messiah, the King of Kings. But instead of using that power and that authority that God had given him to overthrow Rome and to establish a rule on earth, he actually surrendered the power that he had. He gave it up to those who were against him and he allowed them to take him 
and to beat him and to punish him like a criminal and ultimately to kill him, to execute him like somebody who was an absolute disgrace. And then he rose again. And in doing so, he revealed that there really is that day coming, that day of judgment, that day of resurrection, where God will remake the world and, and Jesus himself will be the king of kings, the one who we are all seated under and follow his rule and reign in that new eternal life. But you see, by, by doing this, he upended people's expectations. No one previous to Jesus had considered the possibility that the Messiah would actually die himself that he would be the first to be resurrected, that he would guarantee that day when we would be finally restored to perfect relationship with God and the world that he originally intended. It, it, it totally changed people's view of what it was that the Messiah was supposed to do in the first place. And the result is this combination of emotions that we've already touched on today. This this simultaneous sorrow and joy, this, this grief and rejoicing. You see, in what Jesus did, rather than totally undoing the effects of sin on the world, rather than stomping out all that which is evil in the world, what he chose to do was to take evil and upend it. He subverted the powers of sin and darkness for God's greater end. Because of what Jesus did, now sin allows God to demonstrate to us his perfect grace. Because of what Jesus did, now suffering draws us closer to God. Because of what Jesus did, now death is just one step closer to being in God's perfect kingdom. The important part is to recognize that none of these things are innately good. Sin, suffering, death, are evil. They are contrary to God's purposes in the world. And they hurt. When we experience them, we know there's something wrong here and it causes us anguish because this is not the way that the world should be. But, as the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, because of Jesus, these things lose their sting. And we should respond in a way that reflects that. And this is why I say that it's so important for us to honor God in our grief. God wants us to honor him in our grief. And I think looking at the example of his earliest followers helps us to do that. I want to center in on one story in particular. A man named Joseph of Arimathea. And Joseph's story is an interesting one. It's, it's one of those many in scripture that kind of leaves us wanting for a little bit more details. He's somebody who's only mentioned at one particular occasion, though he is mentioned in all four Gospels with slightly different details thrown in. We're told that he was a wealthy person and a member of the Sanhedrin, which was a Jewish body that oversaw the laws and theology of the Jewish people at the highest level. We're told that he kept his devotion to Jesus secret, because of the fact that the council was hostile towards Jesus and his followers. And yet when he saw that Jesus had been crucified, instead of using that as an excuse to hide his faith and to give up on it, he chose to take that moment to step out. And he approaches Pilate and says, I want his body. 
And, and, and he receives Jesus' body and he invites the other followers of Jesus Christ at that time to go to a tomb which we're told was his own that had been prepared eventually for his day when he died. And he uses that tomb as an offering to Jesus. And alongside Jesus' other followers, including a man named Nicodemus, who was another council member, he prepares the body, honors Jesus in doing so, and puts it into this tomb. Now, this is a real moment of grief for Joseph. We don't get a lot of detail about what he's thinking or feeling, and because this is the only time we see him, we really don't know much about his personality. But it's very clear that he is, he is mourning the loss of someone that he respected greatly and hoped would accomplish great things for God's people. It's very possible that he also had some sort of personal relationship with Jesus. And I think that because of the fact that the other man who's mentioned alongside him, Nicodemus, is somebody that we do see earlier on having one-on-one conversations with Jesus about salvation. Right? And so it's possible that he, he's somebody who was able to sneak away from time to time and talk to this Jesus and get to know him personally. One way or the other, it's clear that he is grieving and, and that he's doing his best to honor God in that grief. What, what is his example model for us here? Well, first of all, it shows us how Jesus' earliest followers responded to his death in particular. And when it comes to Jesus' death in particular, they recognized that it was a product of sin. That, that in this moment, humanity had demonstrated their complete and total rejection of God. He was the one who was come to save them, and instead of receiving him, God's people turned their back on him and even killed him. And Joseph recognizes this as a tragedy. He recognizes this as something that should not be. This is a product of sin. And in that moment, he recognized that something very important had been lost. That there was opportunity for God's people to turn away from their sins and to respond to Jesus. And, and, and there was opportunity for Jesus to be established as the one who ruled and reigned in God's behalf. And that was lost. Now, it's notable that that was a temporary loss. We know the story didn't end here. But in that moment, Joseph and his followers are feeling a real loss. They see that there's significance to what has passed in Jesus' death. And at the same time, even, even as they felt the loss, even as they grieved him, even as they recognized this as a product of sin, they held on to hope. They recognized that God's story was not done, even if this man was killed. And we see that in the fact that they do prepare the body in the Jewish way, which symbolizes the expectation that ultimately this man will be raised. Ultimately, the day of resurrection is coming. That, that they, are, they are ready to see Jesus brought back to life and part of God's greater story. They saw that there was hope beyond their immediate circumstances. We actually can take away some practical lessons in this as well. We see, we see kind of the mindset that they had about Jesus' dying in, in particular, but we also see them go through certain steps that I think are helpful for us in understanding how to process grief. And I think this is important because sometimes in our day, I don't think we really know how to process grief. I think a lot of the time we, we distance ourselves so much from death and suffering that when we have to face it, we end up very confused. We don't really have uh, uh, steps to go through so that we can deal with it healthily. And so I think it's instructive that we see here Joseph, first of all, facing his grief. That he doesn't run from it. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't pretend that everything is just okay. 
that the first step he takes is simply to acknowledge there is something wrong here. And then, and then from that, he looks for constructive ways to show his love for the person that he's lost. In his case, it's, it's the taking of the tomb, the setting it aside, the giving of something to honor Jesus that he had to offer, right? He could demonstrate his love for this man even as he processed his grief, and I think as a means of processing his grief. Then, then he and the other followers, they, they use prayers and ceremonies to demonstrate their hope in this moment. That they remind themselves this is not the end of the story by going through certain motions that bring them back to the truths that God has given them. In their prayers and their ceremonies, they're able to hold on to the hope even as they process their hurt and their loss. And then finally, we see that Joseph doesn't do this all by himself. Instead, he invites others to share in that grief. Right? That, that we see that, that he uses this moment to call together the others and to say, let's do this thing together because he recognizes this is a shared thing and that he needs to share it with others. So then how do we, how do we process grief and loss in our own day? And I think obviously the specific methods are going to differ a lot from what Joseph and his, followers, and his friends did, right? But I think the example is very helpful in a general sense. When we face evil, when we face suffering, when we face death, we must face our grief in that moment. We can't turn away from it. We have to acknowledge there is wrong here, and I have experienced loss. And in that moment, we can look for constructive ways to show our loss and to honor the person or the thing that we have lost, to demonstrate our love for those who are no longer with us. And we can use prayers and ceremonies in particular to demonstrate our trust in God and to remind ourselves of the fact that we have hope beyond our present circumstances. And we can invite others into that grieving process as well. Now, now, this is something that I've gotten to experience more than I would like recently. This is Melanie. She, she was my cousin. She had a pretty hard life and spent her last few years battling cancer. And ultimately, she died a couple weeks before her daughter got married. Within that, she was a great example to our extended family of what it looks like to keep fighting and to hold on to hope and brought our family closer together in the loss. But it was still a pretty heavy event for our family. And this is my grandpa. His name is Robert. His circumstances were very different. He was, he was almost 90 years old. He lived a good, long, faithful life. He overcame a lot of his early difficulties to become a faithful family member and, and father and grand, grandfather. And he was somebody that really demonstrated God's love in a lot of the ways that he treated people. He passed away very peacefully just about a month and a half ago. Had, had Parkinson's, but that really didn't play a big factor in it. Ultimately, he just, he just got sick and he no longer was wanting to live, and so he passed away. Now, on the surface, these two people and their deaths seem very different. One really is what we would describe as a tragedy. 
a young mother who leaves behind her children, who, who, who actually uh, is outlived by her own mother, and, and, and one who you know, suffered greatly as she was on her way to death. Versus another who is a faithful friend and family member, somebody who, who lived a good long life and he died relatively peacefully, and, and really there was a lot of celebration of his life rather than a lot of suffering and anguish that went along with it. But the truth is that both of these involved a lot of loss, on the part of myself and our extended family. And I had to acknowledge that in the moment. That as as good as one seems and as bad as the other seems, both share the resemblance that there has been an important loss here that ultimately neither should have had to suffer what they suffered. And so I had to go through the motions of honoring them, of, of reminding myself of the hope that I had, and of inviting others to share in that grieving process. And they were both very different. When it came to Melanie's passing, it was a lot harder. There was a lot more heavy tears and heavy conversations and and wrestling with big questions. In Grandpa's case, it wasn't as heavy as all that. But even as we shared the memories, there were tears. We had to go through that. And so I recognize as I look at the story of Joseph of Arimathea, there's wisdom here. And I can see how, having gone through these things, it has helped me actually honor God in my own grief. And again, I think that's what this story shows us is that we need to do that, that God wants that of us. He doesn't want us to deny our grief or try and bypass it, but instead to honor him in it. And then bring us back to the overall point, because I don't want the personal application, the life lesson, to detract from the greater focus of the day, which is Jesus' death. Good Friday is really the pinnacle of both our sorrow and our rejoicing. In what took place on that day almost 2,000 years ago, we see humanity at its absolute lowest. We see a good and perfect Savior being rejected by his people, being tortured, being beaten, being slaughtered like a lamb. And we should feel horror at the fact that that took place. This, of all things, is injustice. This, of all things, is evil. And yet at the same time, we recognize it is through that that forgiveness was earned, that a path from uh, from death into new life was given. We recognize that Jesus himself held on to and embodied hope in that moment as he went towards the cross. And so, and so we, we must, like Joseph and the earliest followers of Jesus, remember this is a product of sin. This is wrong. There was significant stuff that was lost in Jesus' death, even if it was only temporary. And yet, there's hope beyond the grave. There's hope on this day. Now, I hope that we have acknowledged these things well thus far in our service today. Certainly, I appreciate the songs that Daniel has pulled together and the scripture readings that Brian has pulled together and, and the efforts that have made to be able to do both of these things, to, to grieve and to rejoice on this Good Friday. But I also hope that this mood is something that we all carry with us through the rest of our day. That we embrace the fact that this is a day of both rejoicing and of grieving. And that we should reflect that in our conversations, in our prayers, and in our actions as we go from here. 
I'm going to invite the team back up to the stage, and we're going to have a closing song together, which I think captures some of those different emotions. It imagines going to the graveside with Jesus and uh, Jesus' earliest followers, kind of anticipating the, the morning process getting heavier and deeper, and, and at the same time beginning to catch a glimpse of the fact that this is not the end of the story. There is hope beyond the present circumstance.